for those of you who are with us for the very first time, we are in a series in the book of Colossians, and uh, we're, we're pausing that series today um, because I want to introduce you to um, a church planter that we are supporting as a church. You know, one of our values is church planting. And by what I mean by that is simply that we want to be a church that advances God's kingdom through uh, the means of planting other churches. Um, and so today I am introducing to you uh, a church planner, a real life person that's going to um, immerse himself as a missionary into uh, actually uh, Jesus is going back to where he was born, Mexico City, but he's going to uh, you know become a missionary there and you know from the ground up start a church to find people who don't know Jesus Christ and introduce them to him, disciple them and, and grow a church. Uh, in an area where there is no church, and we call that church planting. You know what church planting is because you're sitting in a church plant that's only nine months old. And for those of you who have been with us since October of, of 2012, I mean, you know this is a, you know, this is a labor of the Lord. And, uh, and so we are pleased to have uh, with us as a guest today uh, Jesus Rodriguez. Uh, Jesus uh, dwells somewhere in, in Maryland, not too much longer because in a week and a half, he and his wife, Carla, and their two kids are going to Mexico City, Mexico, to, uh, to begin a, a plant. Um, they've been married. How long have y'all been married? Almost 10 years. They've got two beautiful kids. Um, Jesus right now is interning uh, as a church planner at Redemption Hill Church, which is a, a sister church to us right there in the midst of, of D.C. Um, he, is, he will plant with uh, the network of churches that we are with, Acts 29. And the main purpose of Acts 29 is really making disciples through this means of, of church planning. So uh, let's give a warm transit welcome to Jesus Rodriguez. Well, hello, and thank you for that. Uh, thanks to Jeff, and thank you because uh, you guys are supporting us. You are a huge part of what we're going to do and what we're already doing. And um, But before I explain to you a little bit of what we're going to do, I wanted to introduce myself. My name is Jesus Rodriguez. It's just like Jesus. And um, <laughs> so Jesus is here preaching to you. <laughs> and uh, my wife, Carla, is here with me. Uh, we've been married almost 10 years. Uh, she was born and raised in this area, in the, well, the Silver Spring area. And we have two kids, uh, Joel and Luciana, they're in kids worship. We try to get a break as much as we can. Um, they're two and nine months old, so we're still in that trying to sleep uh, moment of our life. So uh, um, we're really glad to be here. And again, like I said, um, we're part of Acts 29. We will actually be the first Acts 29 church in Mexico. And um, the first time I met uh, Jeff, uh, I, I really connected with him. We come from very similar backgrounds, and he has the same passion I have, which is seeing lost people or people who don't know Jesus come to Jesus, and, and that's our passion too. So uh, he said that he wanted to support us as, as a church plant, and I was really excited about that, and, and you guys are part of that. <clears throat> so let me tell you a little bit about my calling. I, I wasn't born in a Christian family. I was born in a Catholic family. If you're familiar with Mexico, most of Mexicans are Catholic, uh, but it's a different kind of Catholicism. Uh, in, in Mexico, the Inquisition basically required of the indigenous people to become Catholics. 
you basically don't, didn't have an option. So what, th what they did in order to, to soften the, 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 the immersion of Catholicism in, in that area, they uh, created some, some of a, somewhat of a syncretistic version of Catholicism. So now you have Catholicism and you have some of the indigenous rituals mixed in. In fact, some of their uh, gods or deities are, have been also uh, recognized now by at least the Mexican Catholic Church. So it's a very different Catholic than, than the one you probably see here. And um, I was brought up like that. I, was, I did my first communion and, and all that. I can't remember the names anymore. But um, I, was born like, I was born in that family. My, my father is a, is a doctor. My mom is a stay-at-home mom. And, and at the age of 11, they <clears throat> started to look for help because they were getting into trouble in their marriage and, and eventually became Christian. My wife ended up later on, some years, uh, being, becoming a pastor. And so at the age of about 13, 14, uh, my dad became a pastor, and I can be somewhat considered a, a pastor's kid. Uh, my wife, uh, she was actually born in a pastor's kid. Uh, well, she's a pastor kid. Her, her parents are pastors. Uh, and if you would ask us a long time ago, maybe before 2009, if we wanted to ever be pastors, we would probably... You know, giving you a weird look and say, no, we, we will never be anything but pastors. And uh, in 2009, we moved to Virginia Beach, and, and God started speaking to us about becoming pastors. And honestly, and she can tell you, the first idea of it, the first concept, the first glimpse we had of maybe God is calling us to be pastors, it was really it wasn't nice. We didn't like that. And we started to fight that. In fact, the whole thing came up because of a, 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 um, an argument we had. And anyway, God just continued to itch on our, on our hearts. And, and we're not going by force. And, and don't get that impression. Since 2009 up until today, God has been slowly growing that into, a, into an out, outright passion. We are now passionate about doing this. We love what we're doing. We, are, we have the conviction that this is what God has for us. So in 2012, we came up across Redemption Hill and Acts 29 Church in Capitol Hill. And I went to lunch for, with Pastor Bill, and he offered me a residency program. I ended up being part of the network, which is Acts 29. I did a licensing program through the EFCA, Evangelical Free Church of America, um, so I was able to do things that I never thought I would be able to, and now we're ready to go to Mexico, and we're very, very excited to do this. And so you can have a better idea of where we're going. I always want to give people uh, the right perspective of Mexico, and I always say that Mexico City is a beautiful and ugly city. It's a city where you have both of the best and uh, both the best and the worst. And I think that's true for most cities. But in Mexico City, uh, there is a lot of people. Mexico City is the third most populated city in the world. There's t over 25 million people in one city. The, the metropolitan area of Mexico City is 25 million people. So if you can imagine, the 22% uh, of the whole country lives in one city. That is a lot of people. It's people on top of uh, people. So crime, pollution, corruption, all of that is, it's more noticeable because there's a lot of people. I don't know if you realize, but the more people you put together, the more conflict you're going to have. So imagine 20, 25 million in one place, there is a lot of conflict. Uh, so corruption is one of the biggest problems. And in fact, it is said that Mexico is the second most corrupt country in the world. 
And that's only because we bribed somebody not to be the first one. But, uh, <laughs> but that's, that's the kind of uh, a city that we're going into. So uh, just to give you a glimpse, uh, same-sex same sex marriage is already legalized. Abortion is legalized in Mexico City. Um, so we have the same problems of a 21st century city. Um, sex trafficking is huge in Mexico. Huge. It's, it is one of the biggest problems and growing in Mexico City. Uh, it's also uh, a city that's very inclined to, to the occult, to witchcraft. So you have a lot of different sects and cults that, that, that are rising. And, and there's actually one that's called the Holy Death. Sorry. So people actually worship the Holy Death. And they have their, their whole, the churches and all that. So it's a very, I, I don't know how to say, an obscurity-inclined city, if you want to call it that way. Again, 81% of the city is Catholic. And in the last um, probably 50 years, uh, evangelicalism or Protestantism has been growing. But the problem is that in a way to overreact to what the Catholic Church did, instead of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to these people or to my people, and this is across Latin America, a cheap, what I call a cheap version of the gospel came to Mexico. A, a, a version that offers you more than maybe what the Catholic Church can offer you. If you were looking for miracles, then you can become a Christian and you can go to a crusade and, and you can get healed. And, and if you fast long enough, God will give you what you need. And if you become, become a Christian and you start tithing, then God will do what you need to do. And that's the kind of idea that, that's behind what most Protestants in Mexico are after. And, and, and that's also a lot of um, the influence from, from, uh, from the United States coming to, 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 um, to Mexico. And I'm not blaming you all, but that's, that's how it is. It's, it's, a, it's a self-improvement and, and, and prosperity gospel that's been infiltrated in, in Mexico and throughout Latin America. But the good thing is that Mexico City is a very young city. The, the, the largest group, age group, is the 20 to 40-year-old. So you have a lot of young people uh, that are asking questions, leaving the Catholic Church, and um, as you can imagine, being a, an atheist is really cool right now in Mexico. And so that's the city where we're going. Uh, we are excited and somewhat scared. This is definitely not something we can do on our own. And so we ask for you to keep us in your prayers. And you guys are helping us, and, and I really want to thank you. But um, So let's get to, to the Word of God. Um, one of the passages that truly made a difference in my life was this passage that we're going to talk about today. It's Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. And, and this is the one I, um, God used to make me understand the gospel. God revealed his greatness. And I finally understood what the gospel was through this passage. So this is one of my favorite passages. But before we read, I want to I just clarify a few things. There is much using of the word gospel, especially when you're in um, Acts 29 churches and, and, and on our circles. You, you hear a lot of people talking about the gospel, but I just want to tell you what I mean when I say the gospel, okay? So when, when you hear me say the gospel, what I mean is the good news. Gospel means good news. The word gospel comes from the word evangel, which means good news. And the gospel is the good news about what God has done and is doing through Jesus Christ. Again, the gospel is the good news about what God has done and it's still doing through Jesus Christ to bring salvation to this world. 
That's what I mean when I say the gospel. And this is what we're going to see in this passage. So a little bit of intro. Uh, the book of Ephesians is a letter from the Apostle Paul. We know that. And uh, this, this letter was sent to Ephesus, and it, it was meant to circulate uh, around the churches in, in that area. And Ephesus was a, a, very, a society like today, a polytheistic society filled with idolatry, moral deprivation, much like D.C. and today's society. So we see that Paul addresses this letter to that kind of context. So it applies well to us today. And another thing that I want to highlight is that the church in Ephesus is probably like the transit church. It's not a really bad church. It's not probably like, I don't know if you've ever read uh, Corinthians, but that's a really bad church. So this is not really a, good, a bad church. In, in fact, we see that in Ephesians 1.15, Paul tells the Ephesian church, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards the saint, towards the saints. And also in Revelation, the angel is speaking to the churches and, and, and what it's said about Ephesus is that I have this against you that you have left or abandoned your first love. So really it's not like you committed so much sin. So we could kind of deduce that it wasn't such a bad church. So in that context... That fits the transit. So we can see that um, we sometimes consider ourselves a good, good persons, good people. And the church of Ephesus also didn't have much of a bad reputation. But God and the angel calls them to go back to their first love, to, remind, to remember the gospel. And that's what we're faced every day. That's what we face every day. The same call from God constantly comes to us. Remember what I've done for you. Remember what the gospel is. Remember what was, God, what was done through Jesus Christ. And live in light of this every day. So let's go ahead and, and, and jump into our passage. And we're going to read Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 10. And this is a continuation of a prayer slash reminder that Paul started from uh, chapter 1. And please forgive my English or Spanish, whatever comes out. Sometimes I still get confused. <laughs> I actually did the other day. I started speaking Spanish, and I didn't even realize it until somebody asked me, like, what are you saying? So if that happens, just raise your hand and tell me. <laughs> let's, let's, let's go ahead and read it. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the curse of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us in, with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he, for God, prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. So today we see 
And I see two clear moments or two clear sections of this passage. The first one is verses 1 to 3 that basically give us, gives us a picture of what life is without Christ. So if you look at the passage, if we divide it, um, we can see that verses 1 to 3 is life without Christ. And that's a picture that Paul gives us. Then we have the second part of that, which is our life with Christ. And that's verses 4 until the end, verses 10, verse 10. And that's how we're going to approach the text today. So the first part is life without Christ, and the second part is life with Christ. So we see right off the bat in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. So immediately, God makes it clear, you are dead. Without Jesus, we are spiritually dead and physically dying. Romans 6.23 says that God has established that the wages of sin is death. And therefore, we are both spiritually dead and physically dying. So let me explain a little. If God is our creator and God is our source of life, that means that if we are separate from God, we no longer have life. So that means that we are dead. Think of it as maybe you get an arm or a leg cut off, a limb. And then that limb is just lying there. What's going to happen to that? It's going to die. Maybe it's not dead immediately, but it will surely die. The reason, the reason is because it's no longer attached to its source of life. And this is, what's, this, is what, this is the image that we are given, that we are dead because we're separated from God. And we're not only dead, it's we're dead because of our sins, because of our trespasses, which also increases the fact that we can't even be close to God because we're sinful. Being dead also means that we are incapable of pleasing God or having a relationship with God. Because, again, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. God is holy, and we can't approach Him because of our sin. In fact, we don't even want to approach God because of our sin. So again, because we're separate, because we are in sin, we cannot be alive. Because our source of life is Jesus, is God Himself. Romans 10, 3, 10 to 18 makes it very clear that there is not one good person. So maybe you're there just saying, uh, well, I don't know, I'm, I'm kinda, kind of a nice person. But the Bible makes it clear that we are all dead. Romans 3 says that there is not one that is righteous, not one that seeks God, not one that does good. Nobody fears God. And verse 23 of that same passage sums it up by saying, For all have sinned and all, have, all fall short of the glory of God. So we are all dead in our sins. So again, maybe I have not convinced you yet. Remember, I'm just a messenger. I'm just telling you what the Bible says, which is the truth. I have a quote here that I want to read to you. And if you were like me when I was not a Christian, I thought I was really a good person. And sometimes I still think I'm a good person. And that's why I need to go back to this and read it. Because I realize that I'm, I'm not. 
But if you think that you are a good person, if you're, you're thinking maybe, I've seen people that are not Christians or don't follow Jesus and they do good things. Consider what John Piper said. He says, We were made for God. He is worthy of, our, of all our love and trust and honor and thanks and obedience and worship. We may well build hospitals and feed the hungry and educate the ignorant, but if it doesn't spring from trust in God, and if we don't do it to give Him glory, and if we don't have a view to the salvation of others, all we do is sin in respect to God. And therefore, presuming to do good to men without pointing them to God is sin. All that any of us can do without a Savior is sin. For by nature we we are spiritually dead, and until we are made alive by our Savior, nothing we do is spiritual. Everything comes from the flesh, and therefore, without a Savior, all our so-called good deeds are rags and ashes. So, I'm not saying that you cannot do good things. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you're not alive. I'm saying that Everything you do is not enough. Anything we do without God, without Christ, as our number one, as our number one priority is sin. Because we were created for His glory. We were created for Him. Then we move to verse 2. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So let me explain what I mean when I say that we follow Satan. So the first thing we see is that we are dead without Christ. The second thing, the second thing we see is that we follow Satan. If we don't follow Jesus, then we follow Satan. So I know how this sounds, so let me just explain a little bit. Let's begin by noticing that without Christ, we follow the course of this world. So what's this course? What is the course of this world? The course of this world is the course that was set for us by Adam and Eve. It's a way of living that is self-centered. It's a way of living that removes God from the center of your life and puts you in the center of your life. You are the one that rules over your life. You are the one that makes your own decisions. And God has nothing to do with you because you are in charge of your life and you're going to do what you want. And that's the course that our Parents, Adam and Eve, sat for us. If you read in Genesis 3, and I, I, I would like to invite you to read it with me. Genesis 3, verses 1 to 5. Genesis 3, verses 1 to 5 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord has made. had made. He said to the woman, Did you actually say, you shall... Did, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And verse 4. This is an important one. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So notice that the serpent, first of all, he contradicts God. He says, you know what God told you? That's not true. And then he turns and he starts enticing her with her own fulfillment. You will be like God. Your eyes will be opened. What about you? 
Don't think about what God said. What about you? What about what you what are what about your rights? Your dreams? What is it that you want? This is what the devil sold to the woman and to Adam and Eve. And that's the course that we all follow. Okay, let's think for a moment. Isn't that how we live our lives daily? At least is is my case in most of the days. I wake up and I want to stay a little longer in bed. And my kid cries and I want him to shut it. (laughs) Right? And then I wake up and I'm hungry. And I want to eat something that I want. Right? And I don't really feel like going to work because I hate that person. And when I get to my desk, I, I don't want anybody to disturb me. And I don't want people to get into my space. And when I'm driving, people should not do this to me. It, it's all about me every single day. I have kids. I should be ashamed of this. I wish I could tell you it's all about my family and I die for my wife, but that's not how I am. I am wired to be selfish. My child is starting to speak. We're raising them uh, bilingual, so he's a little confused with Spanish and English, just like me. <laughs> I wish I would have had that opportunity, but anyway. Um, one, his, one of his first words um, is mine. And he, he swears that everything is his. We're driving in the car, and he knows park. So he sees a park, and he's like, Daddy, park, mine. I'm like, okay. And everything, he, everything around the house is his, and it has to be done his way. And if not, he cries. He, I didn't teach him that, because I'm not like that. I'm just kidding. So he learned it from me, but he was wired to be like that at this little age. And we see it with, with my nine-month-old. She says, no. She goes like that when you try to take something from her. And, and, and I'm like, man, it's true. It is true. It's all about me. That's the course of this world. That's, that's what Satan has, has really sold to us. That's what we are following after. And that's why we, we are dead, because we chose this way. We chose ourselves. And, and then uh, you notice that it says that we follow the prince of the air, right? Or the power of the air. And that is Satan. Jesus himself calls Satan the ruler of this world. So I wish I could tell you different, but there is no middle ground. When you do not follow Jesus, you automatically follow Satan. And sometimes I... I we don't like to hear this, or we don't want to say it like that. We want to be, uh, you know, tolerant, and we want to include everybody. But it's not like that. God is either a hundred percent or nothing. One either follows Jesus or follows Satan. And I know this sounds very drastic, and it paints a really ugly picture of us as humans without Christ, and that's exactly right. This is the real picture of our condition without Jesus. But I know you might not like this, but bear with me. I'm talking about good news. But let's start with the bad ones. 
Without Christ, we are sons of disobedience. We are also called sons of disobedience in this, in this verse. Because we are sons of Adam and Eve, we inherited their sin. And you could say that's not fair. Well, it doesn't stop there. We also chose to sin. We are sinners by nature and we are sinners by choice. Therefore, we are called sons of disobedience. And if we move on to verse 3, we will see that it goes and say that we are children of wrath. So let me read this for you. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. You see again, it's all about you. It's about your passions. Carrying out the desires of your body or our body and our mind. It's all about what we want. Therefore, we were by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. So if you look at verses 1 to 3, there's really no room for you to move to anywhere. We are all in the same pack. We are all the same kind of people. We are really messed up without Jesus. We are dead. We are sinful. We are children of disobedience. We are children of wrath. And this verse refers to the wrath of God. The wrath of God against sin. So we already established that we are all sinners by nature and sinners by, sinners by choice. But we now uh, must understand that God is perfectly holy. God is perfectly, He's not only just holy, He's perfectly holy. And think about this, if God is perfectly holy, then the holy character of God demands His wrath. Let me explain. An essential part of God's moral perfection is His hatred for sin. The theologian A.W. Pink says, The wrath of God is the holiness of God, stirred into activity against sin. Also, Dr. Steve Lawson, another theologian, says, God is a consuming fire, who feels indignation every day towards the wicked. God has hated wickedness, and is angered toward all that is contrary to His perfect character. He will therefore destroy sinners in the day of judgment. This sounds really not friendly, and it is. But think about this. The way I sometimes see it is we all agree on some issues. There are some issues that most people agree, at least 99%. One of them is racism. We all agree that's wrong, right? And if you don't agree with me, most of us will say that you are wrong. So think about this. Let's say that you are a person that holds to a conviction that racism is something that is absolutely wrong. Then, if you hold to that conviction truly, you react to that, to racism, in a very strong way. Don't you? Because that's your conviction. You can't be friends with an openly racist. Can you? You can't even stay silent if you see racism happening. And sometimes we, 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 are ju we just react when we see something happening. Because we know it's so wrong that something inside of us just reacts to that. 
If I say I'm, I'm against racism and I always talk about it and I say that I am an, openly per, an open person that fights racism and then we, I see it happening next to me and, and I don't do anything, what are you going to say about me? You're not that hardcore. You're really not a person of conviction. Because if you were, you would do something about it. Well, that's the case with God. With God is so much more. He is perfectly holy, and therefore we can conclude that because God is holy, He is separated from all sin and opposed to every sin and every sinner. Because He is perfectly holy. Because God is love, He delights in purity, and He must hate all that is unholy. Because God is righteous, He must punish the sin that violates His holiness. That is a concept of the wrath of God. Ephesians 5, verses 5 to 6 says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. John 3.36, everybody loves to quote John 3.16, but 20 verses after we see, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Without Christ we are dead and we deserve hell. Without Christ we are under, under God's wrath and completely doomed and unable to be saved. This is very important to know. This verses 1 to 3 picture is very important for you to see. Because we must understand our condition before God without Christ in order for us to understand our problem and therefore be able to find a solution or at least see a solution. I know this is a very ugly picture. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do. And that's exactly what the, the Bible is trying to, to, to show. But then we move to the best part of it. Verse 4. But God. It's like suddenly the, 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 the sun just rises in the midst of the deepest dark. I absolutely love this part. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. You see, if I paint a God that is really nice and He doesn't do anything about what you do and He doesn't care if you sin or not sin, then, then His love is really not that much of a deal. I am not a good father if I just say yes to my kid. Believe me, I cannot for His own sake. Sometimes I have to force Him to do things and He cries. And He doesn't like it and He doesn't understand. But I cannot because I love Him. And God is a perfect father. I'm not a perfect father. And the wrath of God is necessary for us to understand his love. The whole tone of the passage changes. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. It's all about, I love, it's all about Jesus. I love the fact that he is the one that takes the initiative. It doesn't start, the verse four, verse 4 doesn't start by saying, uh, and then we tried. And then you, you changed. And, and, and then you opened your eyes and finally stopped. No. 
It goes right to say, but God, He is the one that takes the initiative. He is the one that loves us. 1 John 4 says that it's not that we love God, it's that He loved us first. And what's even more amazing is the fact that He wasn't waiting for you, and He's not waiting for you to get it right, to get your act, act together. He has loved you. In Christ, we are love. We are loved. We didn't love Him. In fact, we didn't want anything to do with Him. But God, He loved us. Despite our rejection and despite our conviction, He loved us because He is love. He just doesn't have love. He is love. He is love. And He's rich in mercy. So His mercy is not just a little bit. It's new every morning. And then it just gets better. 2.5 says, Even when we are we're dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Isn't that amazing? He loved us. And he made us alive. He, going back to that same uh, analogy of the limb, he went and he took the limb and he put it back. Because the limb could not even try. He couldn't even do anything. It was his initiative and he put it back. He attached it back to the source of life. He didn't ask us to change before he could love us. Just notice this. Nobody that is dead can come to life on his or her own effort. Nobody. And that's why it ends this verse by saying that we have been saved by grace. Jesus took the initiative. He humbled himself by coming down to earth, living a perfect life, and taking our place on the cross as our substitute. He took the full wrath of God on himself for you, for me. He died the worst possible death after being beaten and spat on and nailed to the cross. All of that for us. He took our place and he paid for our sins because of his love. This is the kind of God we worship. A God that loves you to death, literally. And it doesn't stop there either. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him. In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. He rose from the dead. And is now sitting to the right hand of God and has all authority and power. This, this blows my mind. If, if, that was, if, if I was God, which I am not, obviously, um, I think it would have been enough for, for just to forgive people and just give them a clean slate. I think that's fair enough, you know? Like, I owe you, I, I, I offended you, then, okay, I forgive you. That's good. But he didn't do that. He went all the way. He went all the way and adopted us as sons and daughters. 
He will raise us to glory and give us a resurrected body just like the one He has. He has promised to bless us with a new heaven and a new earth, free from sin, free from sorrow, free from death, pain, suffering. And this is the immeasurable riches of His grace. Going back to the example of racism, it will be like approaching a racist, forgiving him, making him your best friend, taking him out to eat, bringing him to live in your house, and making him a part of your family forever. In your terms, that's what it would take. And this is way more than that. Because we are all as bad as that racist. And then we move, we move to the best part of it all. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. I could define grace as an unmerited favor or an, or an undeserved free gift. But I would like to say that, uh, like the great reformer, reformer John Calvin said it, grace is the grace of Jesus. Theologian Sinclair Ferguson says, there isn't a thing called grace. All there is, is the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is grace for us. This verse makes it very clear that it's not your own doing because you are dead. It is not a result of your works or your efforts because you are dead. So that no one may boast and say, I contributed to my salvation. Even if it's 0.000000001%, that's a contribution. And he said, no, it's all me. The Bible clearly says that salvation is from the Lord. And I want to... I wanna, I wanna, um, read a passage that I absolutely love. Ezekiel 16, verses 1 to 14. We're going to read it. This is an amazing passage. And I just want you to follow me as much as you can. Ezekiel 16, verses 1 to 14 says, And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor robbed with salt, not... Um, wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of, out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, for you were aboard on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived to full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown. Yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And spread the corner of my garment over you and cover your nakedness. I made my vow to you and enter into a covenant with you, declares the Lord. And you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you, you also with embroidered clothes and shot you with, a fine, with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk and adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and chain on your neck. And you get the idea. 
The picture that we see here is a picture of a baby that when, as soon as that, that baby was born, was thrown out into the field, still with water and blood and the cord attached to that baby. And that's the image that Ezekiel is portraying of Jerusalem or Israel, which is us today. Completely helpless. And God passed by and said, I will help you. And God took that baby and made it an amazing woman, beautiful, adorned. That's the image of the gospel. That's why it's called the good news. Maybe you thought that Christianity was a bunch of rules. Maybe you thought that Christianity was making better decisions. But it's about grace. It's about Jesus. It's all about Him. I didn't understand this. I've been a Christian since I was 11. And I could not understand this. I went to Bible college. That's where I met my wife. In Mexico. I even have a really embarrassing story about it. I used to think that um, you could kind of twist God's arm by doing certain things. And it was, up to, it was up to me to really get what I needed and change. So I started fasting. And I have nothing against fasting. We should fast. I think it's clear that I need to fast more. Um, but I wasn't really focused on God or pleasing God. I was focused on getting what I needed to get or changing something I didn't like about me. So I started focusing on fasting. And I, and I said, I'm going to fast for seven days. Just water. And I was in the soccer team of the, of the school and decided to play on the third day I was fasting. And I had to request my, my change or my substitution immediately after I went into the field because I couldn't even run. And then uh, I somewhat, somehow made it until the seventh day. And I was like, I'm hungry. So I made the worst mistake that any college kid make after being hungry for seven days. I lived in the, in the north in, in Durango, and they sell these burritos. If you, think, if you think Chipotle is big, you have not seen anything. Imagine a, a pizza-sized tortilla filled with meat, spicy, obviously, because it's real Mexican, and, and beans and all kinds of stuff. They wrap it, cut it in half, and then you have two of kind of like the size of um, uh, Chipotle burritos. So that was my breaking my fast uh, meal. And to just make things better, I love orange juice. So I got a liter of orange juice. And I went into my room, shut the door. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm not sharing this with everybody. So I just started eating it. And I just ate the whole thing. And as soon as I finished... I started feeling something really wrong in my stomach. And it was getting worse. I drank my, my juice so it can make it go away. Long story short, I ended up in the hospital. I was about to literally die. And the doctor asked my friend, because I couldn't even breathe or talk, what happened to him? And my friend is like, um, he fasted for seven days. Anyway, I, I'm, uh, I've made it, obviously. But that's how fixated I was on trying to do things. 
I put my trust in me. I thought I was the one that made it happen. And you know what? It's not. Maybe you're, you are a Christian and you still think that you need to try harder. But let me tell you that it's all about Jesus. He lived the perfect life that we could never live. He took our sin that we could never take away. He took our place on the cross and died in our place. And He was punished for us. So if you believe that and you surrender to that, all you need to do is repent of your sinful life and give your life to Jesus and then make, it, make Him the Lord of your life. Make Him the center of your life. Because guess what? You cannot save yourself. He's the only one that can save you. And just to finish, verse 10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are now called to take the same gospel that saved us and share with everybody else. This is not just for us to feel good. This is about grace. And if you have been extended grace, we should also be graceful to others and take the gospel. Being a Christian is not about you. Being a Christian is not about your life. It's not about steps for a better marriage. It's not for you to lose weight or get more money. It's about Jesus and about His glory. And that's what the gospel is about. That's why it's not up to you. And we should live our life in light, in light of this and take this gospel and tell it to everybody. But be graceful. And do me a favor. Stop thinking that people who don't know Christ will act like if they, would, like if they do. Remember, we are all messed up. You are a Christian, maybe. I am a Christian. I'm still sometimes amazed at how stupid I am. And that should give us grace for people who don't know Jesus. Because we are as bad as them without God. It's all about Him. It's all about His good news. It's all about the gospel. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank You for Your mercy. Thank You for Your grace on our lives. Thank You for the call that You have put for all of us. It doesn't matter if we're church planners or pastors. We are all called to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and make disciples of You. Help us, God. Help us. We can't even do this on our own. We surrender to you, God, and we want to honor you with our lives. We want to love you back because of the great love that you've given us through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.